if you'll if you'll indulge me, I want to ask you a couple more questions about James Brown. Were there any artists that James Brown at that time when he was big contemporaries that he looked up to or liked? Did he acknowledge that at all? He would never acknowledge that. Whenever you talk to him about other artists, it invariably went to artists that were either radically different than him. Like he would talk about jazz guys, Lee Morgan, Jimmy Smith, um, Miles Davis. He would talk about predecessors in R&B. He used to talk about Roy Brown a lot. Wynoni Harris, the guys who did the jump blues stuff in the late 40s, early 50s, Louis Jordan. I think those were the guys who influenced him simply because they were the shit that was happening when he was young. You know, that, that was what he heard and what he took and built on. And, and through the years, he recorded quite a few songs that were associated with, with those three artists. Um, now, every once in a while, you'd be riding in a car and something would come on the radio and you could tell he really liked it. But he would never really acknowledge the groups. He was, he was, it, it was, it was strange. He just, he would not acknowledge a contemporary. I kind he of was figured so that. competitive. Just his competitive nature would not allow him to acknowledge a contemporary as if somehow it was the sign of weakness. Now, uh, he would acknowledge singing groups, vocal groups, um, particularly those who weren't necessarily known as sex symbols. In other words, he wasn't too interested in the Temptations or the Delphonics because they got all the girls. But he would take a group that were just great singers, but not necessarily sex symbols like the Dells or the Isley brothers. And, you know, he would admit to liking them because they, they weren't, he didn't see them as, as competition. I've heard though that he did uh, appreciate or indicate some way that he liked what Cool and the Gang. Yes, I, I was just going to say that, that he liked Cool and the Gang. And of course, early Cool and the Gang was, you know, uh, was very James Brown based in their, in their sensibility, in the way they arranged their horn parts and, and, um, no, he, he, he appreciated Cool in the Gang. But he never uh, seemed to acknowledge someone like Sly Stone or Jimi Hendrix or... I don't think he understood Hendrix. I think he just saw Hendrix as somebody who was a bad imitation of Muddy Waters. Because I, I, I just don't think that it, it wasn't in his orbit to understand the effect of Hendrix. Um... I don't remember any conversation about Sly Stone, but the best way you can tell what he liked was by what songs he would let his support acts cover. Because the support acts that were part of his review, his full-time support acts, Marva Whitney, Bobby Bird, there were some others who came and went through the years, would frequently do cover songs. And you could tell by what those songs were what James liked. Because they weren't going to pick them. He was going to pick them. He picked every song. And, and even more so, the, the songs that the band would play instrumental versions of in their warm-up set. Because for a lot of these concerts, the band might do 45 minutes to an hour of instrumentals at the opening before James Brown or anybody even sang a note. And um, um, 
half of those would be instrumentals that he had recorded with his band, and the other half would be covers. And you, that, that, was, that was how you knew he liked something, because if he liked a song, he would tell the band to work up an arrangement of it, or he would tell Marva Whitney to sing it, or Bobby Bird to sing it. He liked Sam and Dave. Um, definitely like, that was in, in the 60s. He liked Sam and Dave. He, he always had them singing Motown hits. Um, so he was he was very well, was popular and he had good taste. So, I mean, you know, he, he liked the stuff you would think he'd like. Um, he was just too competitive to talk about. Yeah, that's why Prince had a bit of that, too. When we talk about some of the parallels, I think, you know, especially early on, early Prince on. did like acknowledging like what might have influenced him and that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, did you? He, he, he kind of outgrew it, I think. But Yes, uh, yes. Um, did you get much time in the studio when, when James was working in the studio at all during that time? Quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, particularly in Cincinnati because the studio was in the same building as our office, so we'd be back and forth. Um, and a lot of times he'd record at night, so you'd be, you know, the, the office would close at six, seven o'clock. And if he was in town and he was recording, um, you'd just go around the corner and hang out in the studio all night. Um, so yeah, quite a bit. What what might be one or two of your personal favorite songs from that period? Sex Machine, which we did in Nashville at Stardate Studios um, after a show. Um, I was there for the whole session that made up the Sex Machine album. All the stuff he did with Bootsy and Catfish, that he added fake applause to make it sound like a live record. The famous cover of Give It Up or Turn It Loose that, that they did that's been sampled and God knows what else for through the years. I was there for that session. Wow. Um, get Up, Get Into It, Get Involved. Soul Power, which we recorded, I say we, um, he recorded on my birthday in, we were in Washington, D.C., playing the Lowe's Palace Theater. And after the, the, the first show, he said, see if you can find a studio for tonight. And sure enough, this was, again, good training for Prince. Um, so we found a studio in D.C., and after the second show, we're truck and bus off to the studio for an all-night recording session. That was Soul Power, and just coincidentally happened to be my birthday, so I remember that. Wow. Uh, you know, so, yeah, there were, there were quite a few. Wow. Um, and did you ever run into any issues at all being a white guy in that environment? Did that ever come up, or...? Not really. Um, I mean, it, it. when I first went to work for him, it was on my mind, particularly when we'd go down south. Um, but I have to say, and, and, and people don't believe me when I say this, I never felt that my color was either an advantage or a disadvantage in that company. Which is saying a lot, particularly when you look at the at the era it was in, because if 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 I were a young black man in the 1960s, I wouldn't have trusted me. Um, and it it just I mean, there again, James set the set the tone. You know, he he was very honest. He's like, look, I'm I'm pro black, and I'm always going to hire majority of black people. But there's a couple of white people that fit my camp and they fit in for whatever reason. 
And if they're the best for the job, I'm going to hire them. And I don't care who likes it or doesn't like it. So he set the tone. So better than anybody, you know, say anything. I mean, there may very well have been people there who didn't like me because I was white, but they never expressed it or showed it. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I only say that because if I had been a black man in the South in the 60s, I wouldn't have been crazy about white folks. You know, why would I? You know, 90% of the problems I have are because of white folks going back to my ancestors. So why in the world would I like much less trust everyday white folks? You know, as a whole, I'm not talking about individually. Obviously, every individual stands on their own feet. You either trust or like them because they're good people or you don't, regardless of race. Duh. But, you know, in general, um, So it it was it wasn't really like a fish out of water. You just kind of blended in because, you know, I had similar experience in that in the seventies. I went to hundreds of concerts and uh, I was just a teen. Mm-hmm. But it's so the many of them. I mean, you, you're talking the gamut from you know P funk to um, all the funk groups and in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I was the only white face. Mm-hmm. Um, and I only. I never ran into a major issue a couple times. It got a little tense. Sure. But, um, but mostly it, it, it went okay. Um, and, but it did, you know, it was something that weighed on my mind when I was sometimes at those shows, just because I was afraid Listen, something could happen. But let, let me put it this way. I don't care if you're white, black, rich, or poor. If you go to a concert, you want to hope you come home in the same state you left. You don't want to go to jail. You don't want to get hurt. You don't want to get shot. You don't want to get stabbed. And you don't want to have to hurt anybody else. You want to go to the concert and come home happy and safe. That theoretically goes for everybody. Now, in any concert audience, particularly in an arena where you got 10, 12,000 people, anywhere you go where you got 10 to 12,000 people, you're going to have a certain amount of knuckleheads. You're going to have a certain amount of haters, whether they're white or black. And you're going to have a certain amount of thugs, whether they're white or black, rich or poor, young or old. It's just go to a baseball game. There's some knuckleheads there. Think about the poor guy who got killed in the parking lot at Dodger Stadium for wearing a giant hat a couple of years ago. You know, Um, shit can happen anywhere. But I just, you know, it's like you just tell yourself that, like, there's 10,000 people here. And maybe 20 of them I got to worry about. Hopefully they're in the next row somewhere, you know. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be about race. It, it, it could be about they don't like the shirt I'm wearing. Or they got hold of some bad drugs and whoever's around is going to get hurt. Well, you I know? didn't even think it would necessarily it be, be, about, be about race. But it might be that just somebody is, you know, too whacked out on drugs. Sure. Or they're, or they're looking for conflict. And you just happen to stand out a little more because of the difference. Sure. So maybe they might zero in. Yeah. But that yeah. was, you know. Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm not, I'm not naive enough to think that there weren't some white. I mean, there was, a, there was a famous story at the Howard Theater in Washington, D.C., which was the Apollo of, well, it still is. It's still functioning, refurbished and reopened, the Howard Theater in northwest Washington, 
um, back in the day was the Apollo of DC in that they had shows just like the Apollo. They would play there for a week at a time and do four shows a day starting at two o'clock in the afternoon up until midnight and play people like James Brown and Jackie Wilson and Motown and so on and so on. And I used to go up there to go to shows frequently and um, I never really worried about it again. It was a, the audience was predominantly, if not totally black, and it was a black-owned and run theater um, in a black neighborhood. But there was a story about a white kid who apparently was shot to death waiting in line to get in to that theater one time. This was back in the, like, I guess, mid-60s. And um, I remember learning about it from James Brown because it was sometime later I was visiting him and was getting ready to leave to drive back to Richmond. And he said, son, you better let somebody walk you out to your car. Where are you parked? And I said, oh, well, down the block somewhere, son. And, and he called one of his bodyguards or something. Walk Mr. Lee's to his car. Make sure he's all right. You be careful. You know, and he says, you know, somebody got shot here a couple of weeks ago, something like that. So, I mean, yes, it could happen. Um, didn't happen nearly as much as black people got lynched down south. Oh, God. So yeah. you want to talk about being in the wrong place? No, no comparison. Yeah. But also, I mean, just so, the passion so, and love for the music yeah. could have never kept me away no matter what. So Right. And, and I felt the same way. that If, if I was going to love and respect the music, I had to love and respect where it came from. And if somebody didn't appreciate it, that was going to be their problem, not mine. I just tried to stay out of harm's way and also tried to be as unoffensive as, you know, I mean, having been in, when I went to work for James Brown, I already had black friends that had been in some cases friends for years. So I had already had a basic tutorial on the things that push people's buttons and what, you know, how to be politically correct when you're in a situation where people don't know you. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe I had the advantage of being able to kind of finesse my way through some things that might have not been so pleasant if I didn't have that background. Mm -hmm. um, because it was a volatile time. I mean, we're talking the, 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 the civil rights era and the, the coming of the Black Panthers. I mean, all this shit was going on in Black communities that were really struggling to take control of themselves and their economics, rightfully so. So it, 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 it wasn't always welcoming to white people. And I respected that because I understood where it came from. Um, but... You know, I mean, I'm sure if I really thought about it, after we hang up, I'll think of something that happened that, you know, shit happened. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Just, you just deal with it. Let's uh, let's move on past that, uh, Alan, and, and talk a little bit about, um, you'd mentioned working with Bootsy later on. Um, sure. What What transpired there? Well, actually, we didn't really work together until the 90s. So I, I wasn't on the road with him during the peak rubber band years. Okay. I went to a lot of the shows because, you know, who, who didn't? I mean, if you're a funketeer, you just, I mean, shit was off the hook. Yeah. I mean, that band was stupid. Bootsy's rubber band does not get the credit. Oh. Because I'm, I'm sure if, as a collector, you've got some of the bootlegs of the live stuff. And, and I mean, that band was just sick. I mean, it really was on on par with, with you know. As good as it gets. 
Yeah, yeah, it, it's 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 right up there in its own way with James's band and Sly and George and Earthwind and so on. I mean, it's it's in its own way just as just as important because um, they were really doing some shit nobody else was doing. Absolutely. Well, then maybe we should talk a little bit more about Prince and then post Prince, um, if that makes sense. Your show. Yeah. So you already got into Prince a little bit. Um, as you progressed, uh, how did your relationship develop with him from him? You know, it took a while to gain his trust. And, you know, where did that eventually go for you and him? I'll tell you what happened. Um, about a oh, week, week and a half after I'd been on the road. We were, I was, it was after a show. It was in, in St. Louis, actually, in a, in a hotel. And after the show, I found myself in the hotel bar with the members of the band. I think they were all there, too. I, I think Lisa and and, um, and Dez. I think Lisa was there. I think they were all there. It would have been Fink and, and, and Bobby Z and Des Dickerson and Lisa Coleman and Brown Mark. And we were at a big round table in a hotel bar, bar, restaurant kind of a thing. And just having a beer or something just to unwind after the show. It was like maybe 12, 1230 at night, one o'clock in the morning. And um, just kicking it. So we're, we're sitting in a hotel bar, just kicking it after the show. And um, we look up and walking across the lobby, here comes Prince with Big Chick. It's, it's a famous bodyguard from the Purple Rain era. Now, I'm the new kid, so... Just so happened there was one vacant seat at this round table, and it was next to me. But I get up because there's two of them. It's Prince and Chick, and I'm the new guy, so I'm going to offer my seat to one of them, and the other takes the vacant seat. Chick pushes me back, and, oh, buddy, you sit down. You sit down. So I sat back down, and Prince sits down next to me. The first thing I notice is the whole band freezes up. It was a normal environment until he showed up. But now all of a sudden there's this tension at the table. And all of them are looking like, okay, what does he want? Is he here to cuss us out about something in the show that we did wrong? Or is, what, what's, because it wasn't usual. It wasn't typical of him to hang out with the band in a hotel bar. That was very unusual. Unless it was a, unless it was a party he was giving, this, this was way unusual because usually he would go to the hotel he would take a shower change clothes and then he would go to his bus and spend the night in his bus he didn't like the hotel beds this is 1999 tour that era before he was in ritz carlton's with suites you know um this is still hyatt's and weston's and you know upper holiday inns and and he didn't like so he, he would actually spend the night on his bus sometimes just Parked in the parking lot. Um, but at any rate, as unusual as it was, the whole band tensed up. And I'm like, wow, dude, dude this is kind of weird. So I didn't know what to expect. He sits down, doesn't say anything for about 30 seconds. Then he turns to me, tell me some James Brown stories. That's all he said? That's all he said. <laughs> no hello, nothing, just tell me some James Brown stories. And that funny little voice he would use when he wasn't, you know. 
So real quick, I took a deep breath. I, I don't know what I told him. I wish I could remember. I have no idea what I told him, but I came up with something. <laughs> I don't know if I made it up or it was a real story or what. <laughs> but I came up with something, and from then on, that was the, that was the signal. Now we're cool. Now we can talk. That broke the ice. Yeah, broke the ice. That was that was that was his sign that like okay, I'm used to you now. <laughs> and um, from that point on, like I, there were times I wish I could get him to shut up. But <laughs> what? <laughs> but what? I, I remember be, before that. I was, and this was a few days before the ice was broken. Um, I went to the dressing room one evening between sound check and showtime. It was that period of a couple of hours between the sound check and showtime while people are coming in and the bands getting dressed and what have you. And I went to the, his dressing room because I was in the process of booking hotels for a month ahead on the tour, several weeks ahead. And all I wanted to do was what I would do with any artist I ever worked for at the beginning until I knew their habits. I would say, what kinds of hotels do you prefer? Because, you know, big ones, little ones in the city, on the outskirts, what, what, what's your thing? What's your hotel thing? And uh, so I went up to Big Chick, who was sitting in front of the dressing room door, and I said, Chick, I need to talk to Prince for a minute. Can you ask him when, when would be a good time to give me five minutes? Well, buddy, I don't know if that'll be a good idea. What is it you need to talk to him about? Now, Franoli had warned me, go through Chick. Trust him. It's, you know. But I didn't, you know, I'm not accustomed to discussing my, my, my business with the artist, with the bodyguard. So this was kind of unusual. But under these circumstances, I'm like, okay, we'll try this. I said, Chick, I'm booking hotels. I need to talk to him, just get a sense of what hotels he's in. Maybe he has a favorite hotel in some of the cities we're going. Well, buddy, here's the thing about Prince. You ask him something like that, he's going to think you're not doing your job. You're asking him to do it and that you don't know what you're doing. So I'd suggest you just go ahead and book the hotels you think is best. And if he don't like them, he'll let you know. Okay. <laughs> that was it. <coughs> but... You know, three it's a different. Later. It's a different kind of trial by fire. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So now I'm like, okay, is Chick blocking me? I've got all these, you know, paranoias about what's going on in this crazy camp where nobody talks to anybody, <laughs> and everybody tiptoes around the bus. You know, and then um, then I realized what <laughs> it 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 was like. The band, God bless them, were so paranoid. And they had no reason to be. I mean, it was a great legendary band. And now, mind you, this is way before Purple Rain, but you know, um, it, it, it just didn't make sense to me. The whole thing didn't make sense. There was a, about three weeks in after I'd been out there for a while, one night about three in the morning, Chick came to my room, knocked on the door and woke me up and he said, you got any paid cash? I need about $500. Well, I did road managers carry petty cash. So, yeah. Besides quarters and the pot, yeah. <laughs> right, right. No, now we're in the 80s. It's, it's, I still got the pot, but no more quarters. But at any rate, um, so I said, yeah, I got to go down. So I got to throw some jeans on, go downstairs and get it out of the safe deposit box because I don't keep, you know, sometimes you roll with quite a bit of money in cash. 
and you don't always want it in your hotel room. So, um, so I had to go downstairs, but I, I looked at him and I said, what, you mind me asking? And then I said, nah, I, I, he says, don't ask. So, okay. So I was convinced. Now I'm convinced that who wants $500 at three o'clock in the morning? The only people I ever knew who wanted $500 at three o'clock in the morning either had to pay a prostitute or buy the drugs. That's the only reason. <laughs> no. And I'm like, okay, now it's the rock and roll business I know. <laughs> it's starting to be a little more familiar here. <laughs> this squeaky clean operation wasn't going to be any fun at all with $500. Well, as it turns, so now I'm thinking, here's this recluse who won't let people in his dressing room, who won't sleep in the hotel, sleeps on the bus in the parking lot of the hotel. And I, and I don't know anything about his background. I just, you know, I'm like, what's the angle here? What is he hiding? Because where I come from, people that act like that are hiding something. And usually it's something that they need to hide. So now I'm convinced he's a junkie. Or, or something is wrong with this guy, right? And so the next day at catering, I pulled Chick aside and I said, look, Chick, man, I didn't even want to ask you this, but I, I, I've been around the block a couple of times and I know you have too. And if I'm going to be able to fit in here, I got to know what the lay of the land is, what we're dealing with so that I know how to dodge bullets and stay out of the way of trouble. Because if there's anything going on, I don't want to be part of that. And I don't, you know, in case something happens. He said, buddy, he wanted to, we, we were in, I think we were in Oakland or someplace or San Jose, someplace near campus. He wanted to take this girl on the bus to see the sunrise from the bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge. And I needed to fuel up the bus. And I knew he was going to want to stop and buy a bunch of food. So I just needed to have some cash to take him to the Golden Gate Bridge to see the sunrise. Mm. And I said, okay. You're <laughs> you like, this isn't the world that I know. <laughs> and it, it's, it's not the world that I know. And, and with all due respect, I had just come off a cameo tour. So it was, you know, a little different. <laughs> um, um, I was relieved in a way that, okay, he really is just a weird guy mm. who's got a creative artistic sense. You know, that's pretty fucking romantic. You want to take a girl? Yeah, I, I could see wanting to take a girl to the, see the sunrise at the Golden Gate Bridge. I'm with that. I get that. And now I don't have to worry about my petty cash getting tied up with drug money, which is a no-no. And, you know, it was a huge relief to find out that this guy was not what my paranoia was telling me he was. And, and of course, it, it, the more I got to know him, the more I realized that he, he was going to be the last, God rest his soul, the last one to be a junkie or a cokehead. And, and that, that's, we don't, talk, we don't need to talk about the ironies there, but it, it, it's, it's, it was a huge relief because I really didn't, trust the situation it was just too weird for me it was like you know i knew the stories about ray charles and and when he was at his peak and 
you know, I had seen Ray Charles once uh, the year before he got clean at a show in Richmond, Virginia, and had been there for the sound check. And after the sound check, he was so dope sick. He had an overcoat on in the summer and was in a phone booth calling somebody, cussing him out. I couldn't hear his exact words and shaking like a leaf. I mean, to the point where the phone booth was shaking. And when I was convinced he was never going to do the show, that, that there wouldn't be a show that night. I said, this guy's a wreck. And, and everybody kind of knew because he, he, you had read about his arrests for heroin. So, you, you know, it was if you were a Ray Charles fan, chances are you knew he was a junkie. Um, three hours later, he came out of the dressing room and he glided like a Michael, like Michael Jordan. It was the most amazing transformation I'd ever seen. So obviously, whoever he cussed out on the phone hooked him up. But it was like, that's in my head. This is a guy who hides and stays locked up in the dressing room and stuff because he's got something to hide. So I, when I came aboard the Princeton. I was, there's got to be something to this. this well, is I think if it, around that same era, if it was Rick James, might have been the other way. Well, yeah, and of course, this was at the peak of the cocaine era, which really wasn't so secretive, actually. Coke was pretty flamboyant and outwardly, but as sure, opposed yeah. to her own. I, I was a DJ at the time, a club at Mobile Disc Jockey at the time, and I mean, so many times they would just lay lines out on the mixing sure. board, and I mean, it was like nothing. No, there, there were a few years there where it was crazy. You'd go to a club or even sometimes a fancy restaurant and people would be handing sniffers and stuff and it, it would be like, Jesus, really? Um, so, Alan, during that time, these t the, all these years you were in that camp, what was the most amazing thing, talent or musically speaking, that you ever saw Prince do? All right, I got more than one answer. I was there 10 years. Get out your calculators. That's 365 days a year times 10. So that's 3,650 days. That's how many amazing things I saw. 3,650. <laughs> I, I honestly can't. I, I mean, again, later on, I'll probably think of one or two. But it, it on a daily basis, the amount of music that poured through him his ability to stay up and stay focused and productive for days on end his ability to pick up 20 different instruments and play them all like a virtuoso i never i didn't think anything like that existed and mind you i've been around a lot of heavy people. Um, I mean, James Brown could play a little keyboards. He thought he could play drums. And every once in a while at a sound check, he'd see him strumming a guitar. Not that he could play it. But he couldn't play anything well. Certainly not as well as his musicians. Prince could play guitar better than anybody who's ever played guitar in his band. He could play bass better than anybody who ever played bass in his bands. He could play drums as good as anybody who ever played in his band. And I say it that way because of Sheila. I mean, it, it, it's, and he's had, I mean, Michael Bland, uh, John Rest His Soul, um, uh, Blackwell, Sheila, yeah. three elite level drummers. Prince can hang with them. Mm -hmm. 
It's ridiculous. And not even to mention the way he would record. I, I mean, when, when once Paisley was up and running and he was recording there all the time, as opposed to in his home studio. I mean, occasionally would be at his house when he would record in the home studio, but but not often. Um, but once we had Paisley and, and he was recording in the same building where my office was, you know, he would frequently, he would, he would come in, he had regular hours too. You know, the, the, the office was open like 10 to six, which usually meant we'd be there till seven or eight, but that's the nature of the industry because California is open, you know, you're doing business with agents and people in California and they don't close till five their time. So that's seven year time, you know, all that. But he'd come in around noon, one o'clock in the afternoon, come and get his mail, go over to his, his, what we then called his office, but it became his apartment where he finally lived at the end of the last year of his life. And then he would go downstairs after about an hour, after he's in the building, he'd you know, walk around, see what's going on, what's up, anything I need to know, anything you need to talk to me about, and you'd have your little business conversations, whatever they might be on any given day. And then maybe one, two o'clock in the afternoon, three o'clock, he'd walk downstairs and go into the recording studio. And then I might get a call, this happened several times, not every day, but it happened more than once, where he would call me up on the phone upstairs in, in my office, and it would be like six, seven o'clock in the evening. Want to come down and hear something? Now, this fucking prince asking you if you want to hear something, you just reported. Who, who the hell says no? You know? Yeah, be right down. Now, the thing was, he would only call me when he was working on a funk joint because he knew my taste. And when he was doing anything that was rock and rollish or anything really left field, he wouldn't call me. But if it was something funky, a dance tune or something, then, you know, I'd get the call. Um, and then he'd play something. And it'd be so loud you can't even talk to each other. He would just and have a smirk on his face. And, um, you know, and then, then, then when it was over, he's likely to give you his video concept for the song. Now, mind you, this could be a song that would never get released. It might be a song that was intended for the next album, but would get bumped because, there was, as we all know, there's 50 songs in the vault for every album he ever made that didn't make the cut for whatever reason. So, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not even sure what songs he played me, but... I remember Get Off. I remember he made a big deal of that one. Um, but I would ask him, I said, when did you start this? This afternoon. And it would be something that, that, that he started that day. And it would be not just recorded, but fully mixed. I mean, it would, it would be a record, a finished record with the vocals and everything. And you would just sit there and say, my God. Well, I thought of the concept last night at home in bed. I couldn't wait to get to work today. You know, and, and every time I would just walk out of there, just just stupefied. It it it, 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 it this happened every day, 
And then, of course, if he, if he were in band rehearsals, which was also frequent because he'd rehearsed in the day, he'd rehearsed for six months before a tour to the point where the band was always sick of the show before they even started, but they knew it inside and out. And, um, you know, he might rehearse for 10 hours and then go into the studio and start something and be there until rehearsal started the next day. And you just sit there and shake your head. You just like, just, you know, it, it, it's, it's it truly, you know, on the, on the one hand, there was a part of me that occasionally said, my God, this guy is possessed. This is why he can't have a normal life. He can't get away from the music. Blessing and a curse. It's like a prison. Yeah. But I guess that's why we get two CDs from the vault with 1999 now. It's because he was in that prison. Um, it, it, he was a freak of nature in, in, a, in a very good way. And um, one of I, a kind. I, I've never, yeah, really, really one of a kind. I mean, there are other brilliant musicians. There are other brilliant singers. There are other brilliant performers. There are other brilliant record makers. But I can't think of a single person that has everything that he had on the level he had it. When you were when you were running Paisley Park Records, um, how involved was he with what you had to do with that? And do you feel like Warner Brothers really gave that the support that it needed or should have had? They wanted to. He didn't believe that after a while, but they wanted to. Um, to answer your first question first, when I first took over the label, he was involved. And the way the way that happened is is was actually had a lot to do with the signing of George Clinton, coincidentally, because George called me one day. And this I don't even remember. I was I don't even think I was running the label yet. Um, but he called me in the office at Paisley because we knew each other, you know, from way back in the day. <coughs> I had actually done a, a club show with the parliaments when they were wearing shark skin suits back and when they were trying to be the Temptations on their first single, well, wasn't their first, but their first hit, Testify, I Want to Testify, back in my Richmond days, we actually did a record hop with them. So um, that's how far we went back. Um, so he called me and he said, I don't know if you can help me, but I'm looking for a record label. Now, this is a guy who used to be signed to every other every label in the world at one point. And he was free of capital at that point. He, yeah. he was he, he was long past capital. He was he had he had a deal with Island Records that fell apart because he had a huge tax problem that hit that was going to affect the revenue from the records so the label lost interest and he had a record that was pretty much done um and he was looking for a place to take it so i said well you know send, send me to um, i just want to hear the music i said send me the music send me so he sent me a cassette most of which became the first paisley a lot i, I don't know most a lot of which became the first Paisley album. Cinderella Theory. Correct. Um, and I was in my office playing the cassette, and Prince walked in. What's that? And I said, that's uh, George Clinton's latest album that's looking for a label. Should we be interested? 
Now, I hadn't really, really considered it for Paisley. First of all, I didn't think it was George's best work. He'd probably agree. I hope he would, because I don't want every... I'm a lifelong fan, and it was not his best work. Right. Um, Secondly, I wasn't sure it was what we were trying to do image-wise with the label. Not that George is a bad image. I don't care about all his drama. That's part of what makes George attractive to me. But we were kind of known for a certain sound and a certain kind of artist that Prince liked to develop. And we weren't a home for heritage artists. So I didn't even know if Prince would even think, but it didn't take him five seconds. We should sign him. Seriously? Okay. Now, I'm thinking this means we get him into Paisley and we get him in the studio with Prince. And they both benefit from it. Prince gets a chance to throw some funk on George, update the sound a little bit. We have a little control on how it's mixed because at that point, my biggest problem with George's music after Capital was that he would have great songs with great hooks and then bury them to the point where there was it was like, and I don't know if it was the, 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 the coke or what, but it was like he felt obligated to fill up every track. If you had a 64-track board, he was going to have something on every one of those 64 tracks to the point where the hook would be long gone. Mm-hmm. And I've got some stripped-down work tapes from some of the material that went into the second album that are killer. The second Paisley album? <laughs> The second Paisley album that are absolutely killer, but they're way stripped down where you really hear the the background vocals that Gary Scheider put together and you hear the horns and you hear just enough of the rhythm to, 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 to not cloud it up and it's not so busy. It really sounds like 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 Mothership era Mm P-Funk because it's got that separation and you hear all the parts. I've heard, I haven't heard it, but I've heard it's great. Um, I know someone that has it, so I'm hoping to hear that soon. Yeah, it, 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 it's really nothing like the album that came out. Um, but it, at any rate, long story short, so I'm thinking, okay, this is cool. So, so we, we, we signed George. But the problem was that Prince took an attitude, of, well, I'll give him some tracks, but I wouldn't feel comfortable telling George Clinton what to do. Who am I to tell him what to do? I respect him too much, any more than he should tell me what to do. So I'm like, well, he wants you to produce him, Prince. He wants you to. I mean, George had said, man, I would love him to produce me. You know, George was, George was, I mean, George was, George was a control freak. He should be. He's a genius. But he was also open to all kinds of ideas. And then if it didn't work, he'd toss it in the garbage can and move on. But he was open to trash it. And he really wanted Prince to produce him just to see what the fuck would happen. Because he's curious like that. But Prince wouldn't do it. He, he gave him a couple tracks. We can funk and then forget what, what the booty. Paradigm. Yeah, it, it's been so long, I can't even remember half of them. But he gave him a few that, that, that George played with and so on. But it, it, you know, there never really was a collaboration. In the same way with Miles Davis, there's always these legends about what Miles and Prince must have done in the studio that's never been released. Nothing. All he ever did was send Miles tracks. 
it, it, it's just he was not comfortable telling people what to do. He would give them tracks. Patty LaBelle wanted him to produce her. She was there in Paisley. He sent a tape of Yo Mister over there and said, you could use this. And she wanted him to produce the vocal. He was gone. By the time she turned around, he was ghost. Back to his studio. He, you I, know. 